This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security. A bombshell decision by the High Court in Israel sinks Netanyahu in a political quagmire and the battle lines between the judiciary and the executive branches in Israel come into sharp focus. Also, a Mensch Award, 42 years in the making. You'll want to stick around. It's unholy. I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. It's Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. Um, Big news uh, all around, certainly for you. Things weirdly have sort of quieted here a bit, but in in Israel, massive news, which has had many of us turning to uh, the Israeli papers. And this is one of those days where I slightly regret not having a print edition in front of me, because I'm reliant these days on the uh, website versions. Because if I did have a print edition, a little free gift would have fallen out, which you were kind enough to sort of show me and you sent me a message, a picture of it. I not only not only did I show you a picture, I brought it to you. Look at this. It's a gift for you and the readers of the popular newspaper, daily newspaper in Israel, Yediot Achonot. It is a picture. A uh, double-sided of the new IDF chief of staff, Herzia Levy, lieutenant general, the uh, 23rd uh, chief of staff of the Israeli military. This is one of those moments, Jonathan, where I have a, uh, I think of you, right? Because it's a it's a, a custom in Israel that I, you don't even think about twice. But when you have this, we've been doing this podcast for two years, mazel tov to us. And I kind of internalize the Jonathan gaze from the outside in. And I kind of opened the paper on Tuesday after he was, after he assumed post. And I said to myself, would it be bizarre to someone outside of Israel, the fact that the daily newspaper will distribute to the Israeli population a free mini poster of the uh, Israeli uh, chief of staff, a newly appointed, by the way, uh, the, the newspaper does this for the uh, president-elect and the prime minister-elect. I would admit that doing it for the IDF chief of staff is quite, um, how shall we call it, quaint. Uh, but yeah. you still I see, mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, it's it's a full color poster. What I love, because you're holding it up now, is that it's printed on both sides. So there's no way of, you know, pinning it up the wrong way around and using it for, you know, to as a sort of whiteboard that you can scribble ideas on or, or whatever. It is a color, full color poster of the chief of staff given as a free gift to readers of that paper only or do all the papers do? No, this is a paper that does it uh, today. It's interesting. I was trying to trace back the custom and uh, the answer I I, I found, uh, at least for now, is that the fact that after the six-day war, the chief of staff obviously and the generals were very, very popular. So the posters were not only distributed, but also hung in the rooms of teenagers and others who saw them as heroes. By the way, to this day, there are places, obviously in military bases, you'll have the official picture of the idea of the chief of Step, but even in other places, curiously enough, auto repair shops, for example, places that put up the picture of the um, top military general. Look, Israel obviously is a country in which not only most of the population feels like it's under existential threat, so this is the man who will save us, right? So it makes sense in that regard to put on up his picture. But also, if you're going to give your child away to the IDF because there's mandatory service at the age of 18, you better well know who the chief of staff of the military is. And so that is why it's such a prominent sort of, it has this prominent place, this custom has such a prominent place in the in the Israeli society. What it reminded me of a bit is an observation that came to me when I was, as a very young man, as you know, a student living for a year in Israel was, it was not just me, a few of us had this observation suddenly that Israel was kind of, in our phrase at the time, remember this is the mid 80s, Somebody said, you know, it's basically a communist country. <laughs> and what they meant that. was <laughs> what they meant was it was kind of like one of these post-revolutionary societies, like Cuba or something, where you'd have pictures of the founding revolutionaries everywhere. Um, there were little observations that were true, you know, then it was true. So for example, <laughs> the sort of tiles, the you know, the tiled floors in every mm-hmm. Israeli building were basically identical. There mm-hmm. was one factory that made one standard floor tile. And whatever apartment you went into, whether it was somebody rich or poor, you know, you could be interviewing the defense minister in Tel Aviv, or you could be in a home in Ashkelon. They had the same floor because there was only one. And, you know, the every plastic toilet seat was made on the same kibbutz, you know, and you would notice as if you were in kind of Hungary or Czechoslovakia in the mid 80s. And one of the little features is this idea of a newspaper putting out 
a picture that you should pin up of the chief of staff. There's something a little bit Cuban. I'm not saying North <laughs> Korean, but there is just something a little bit of that. And every now and again, even though Israel is very high tech with the skyscraping buildings and the high and the internet startups, every now and again something you know, pops through like a little plant coming through the cracks in the pavement that reminds you of what was there underneath. And when you showed me that picture, the poster of the chief of staff, I thought, oh, yeah, it's that. I just want to uh, question the fact that a man who's coming from a country that still has the monarchy instated has questions about us doing the poster with the IDF chief. At least he's not the son of the last IDF chief of staff, nor will his son be the next IDF chief of staff. I'm just mentioning that. But, you know, yeah. th this was what I just did was characteristically Israeli, right? I can make fun of my country. If someone else makes fun of my country, then I'll be very miffed. Okay, so we're moving on to bigger news. Well, things in your country. Yeah, go on. Um, <laughs> big, big, big decision um, from the Supreme Court. Uh, I mean, shocking in a way because we knew they had the power to press this button. But, I, you know, I, I'm, it's still shocking when they did it. So, so just tell us the, the, the decision they made and what it could mean. Right. I mean, to call it a bombshell would be an understatement of the year. Uh, the decision handed down yesterday by the uh, high court and the uh, judges ruled, 10 out of 11 judges, disqualified Arya Derry, the leader of the Shas party, from serving as a minister in Netanyahu's government due to his tax fraud conviction. Now, they cited two reasons. I think it's important to disqualify Derry. First is his repeated conviction of tax violations, meeting under the reasonableness clause. It's highly unreasonable, they said, to appoint him as a minister. Again, second uh, reason for this is his false representation. He essentially told the magistrate's court he would step down from power. Uh, and then the court decided to approve his lenient plea bargain. Uh, and now he's going to the Supreme Court saying something else. This in legal jargon is called estoppel, the estoppel doctrine. I'm just saying this because this is a Jewish podcast. I assume there are lawyers listening. So I just wanted to impress them. These are the two reasons why Derry is disqualified. It doesn't seem that Netanyahu, even being the maverick of, you know, somersaults and political juggling, there doesn't seem to be a way out of this. He will have to fire Derry. And this is, of course, happening when there's a, a in the foreground, a battle uh, for the future of the judiciary in Israel. So the people who want to emasculate the court now have more ammo saying, this is exactly what we've been warning you about. The court has too much power to make these decisions. And the people who think actually the other side, right, this proves that this is why the court needs to be so powerful. Yeah. I mean, the accusation always was that the court was overmighty and intruding in politics. And here they are telling an elected prime minister who he can and cannot have as his uh, in his cabinet. I mean, it does seem like that. On the other hand, as you said, he's a repeated breaker of lawbreaker in the sense of a tax evader and had told the court, look, you know, I presume under oath, I am not going back into politics, and then does. So he broke a kind of pro a pledge to the court. You can see why there was no real way out of it for them. I mean, long-time listeners will have been conditioned by us to obsess about the, what you once called Israeli arithmetic, coalition math. Mm -hmm. And they will think, uh, I wonder if they might think, hold on, if he, if he can't appoint this guy, Shas party is going to be loyal to its leader. If he's sacked, they, the Shas party, might walk and suddenly the coalition itself is in jeopardy. Or is it just a simple matter of, okay, Derry won't take the ministerial chair that is owing to the Shas party and instead a number two or three from that party will fill Derry's shoes and the coalition remains stable? Just on that point. How does that work? First of all, the coalition will not fall apart because of this. So technically what will happen is that now we'll have to fire uh, Derry and then someone else from Shas will uh, fill in his shoes. But <laughs> Arya Derry is not, ju not just a politician, right? Arya Derry is probably the second most important politician in Israel today. We should remind our listeners, 63 years old, he's the most senior partner Netanyahu has in his coalition. He even in his current reincarnation was supposed to be the responsible adult with his uh, foot on the brake paddle. Because when you think of, you know, people like Ben Gvir or Smotrich that many Israelis look at, half of the Israeli population at least will say are pyromaniacs, Derry was supposed to be the responsible. Now, let, let's give his history, right? This is a man who, as you said, uh, he was in prison for uh, a bribery. He had 
recurring tax offenses, his brush with the law uh, when he went into jail in 1999. This was a huge iconic moment for Israel history. Of course, he is the leading Sephardic ultra-Orthodox uh, party bringing this whole issue into the foreground in Israel. I'm, I'm telling you all this because this is not just another politician. This is a very, very important politician who will now not sit at the cabinet uh, table. But also, I think it signals to Netanyahu himself you have a lot of power, sir, but you're not omnipotent. You can't do everything that you wanted to do. Will this make him just switch into high gears with the judicial reform? Probably. But it also signals to him you're less powerful than you thought you were. Yeah, I think I'm very glad you mentioned the ethnic element here Mm -hmm. as the leading Sephardi politician in the country. There were 11 judges who made their decision. And I read that the Shas base have been saying full of praise for the only Sephardic judge, Yosef Elron, who was the only one who didn't immediately vote for disqualification for Derry, but instead it should be kicked over to the chair of the Central Election Mm -hmm. Commission to decide whether Derry deserves to wear this mark of Cain and be stamped as guilty of moral turpitude, which would also be then disqualifying. But the fact that outside Derry's house they were chanting, you know, 10 Ashkenazi judges, it just shows you that that fault line the sort of ethnic fault line between Sephardi and Ashkenazi, which has been played and played and played by Netanyahu, but also by uh, the Likud over years and years and years, going back 50 uh, years into the 70s. It's still there. It's still a, you know, there's still a kind of neuralgic spot there that you can touch. And, you know, we're having another round of that. By the way, we should say it isn't 10 Ashkenazic judges because one of the judges, um, Khaled Kaboub, is an Arab. So uh, that argument falls, but you get the point, the kind mm-hmm. of sectarian point there. So it's, look, yeah, it's limited his power. It's, I'm interested to hear you say that the great Houdini of Israeli politics, Netanyahu, cannot get out of this one. I always thought that he's just one of these, you know, he, he's capable of always finding a little, little hole that he can wriggle through some way of simultaneously meeting the letter, obviously not the spirit, of this judgment while keeping in with a voting block that is essential for him and keeping in with Derry. And I know there is a sort of technical thing involving changing the designation of Derry, calling him something else, but that will you tell require us why the, that's the government flawed, flawed. Uh, votes non-confidence. Uh, there, there was, let, let's put it this way. First of all, we should just state that an idea that floated uh, that can't happen is that Netanyahu himself, in this case, is, would, would just take Derry's portfolio until the issue is resolved. Netanyahu cannot be a minister of health and, uh, and the interior because he himself has been indicted. So I remind you that the high court decided that if you're a minister that's been indicted, you can't hold a position. If you're a prime minister that's been indicted, you can. So that's just to add some paradox upon uh, irony there. But um, but <laughs> what, you, what you meant about this issue, I think it will be very, very complicated for Netanyahu to find a way out of this. And there's no option. There was talk yesterday of the fact that making Derry an alternate prime minister, you can't do that without the whole government falling in a non-confidence vote. I don't see Netanyahu rushing to do that. It's too complicated an issue to try and solve it and resolve it with this, I think he'll use this as a way to move forward with his with his plans for the judiciary. By the way, we should probably notice this is the second time Derry has been disqualified. The first time was 30 years ago when he was part of Yitzhak Rabin's government, right? And just just give you the way, the perspective of how Shas moved into the right. Then he was part of Rabin's government and helped support Rabin with Oslo. And Rabin was fuming at the high court for intervening in this decision and deciding that Derry needs to be, uh, he needs to fire Derry because he's been indicted. So this argument about the power of the judiciary is obviously not a new one. Now we're just seeing it amplified in so many levels. It's definitely not a new one. No, I remember that happening. And I remember people who wished goodwill for Rabin in his peacemaking efforts, sharing his exasperation with the court, because pragmatically, you just needed the votes and the numbers and Shas were giving the numbers for a peace seeking government. Uh, and there was real frustration at that time. And a lot of people who would now be, you know, rubbing their hands with glee at Derry's demise were then lamenting it because he was useful then. And as you say, he's, 
you know, in, as part of the pragmatic, opportunistic nature of Shah's politics, they just moved where the votes were and where the, or rather, where the power was. I think the 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 clue here that there was an inherent problem was the very fact that on the eve of this government taking shape, there was talk of the Derry Law. If you have to have a law named after you, that's always a bit of a clue in my mm-hmm. book. If there have to be special legal arrangements just for you, that tends to mean you've done something that violates the conventional norms and you don't really want to be appointing somebody who requires, you know, uh, in this country, an act of parliament to allow them to serve. So um, I think, you know, the court, it seems to me, have done the right thing. It also seems to me perhaps counterintuitive uh, Netanyahu will do as he's been told. He will, exactly as you say, use it as political capital to say, this is precisely why I need to reform the court. That's what he'll say in Hebrew. In English, I think he'll say on the eve of a visit from Joe Biden, I know it's not literally imminent, but it's coming. I think he'll say, see, we are still a nation of laws. We respect the rule of law. Yes. We respect the rule mm-hmm. of law and all those hand-wringing articles you've been reading in the New York Times telling you that we're trashing, torching democracy. On the contrary, we have just given a demonstration to the world of how much we are still a nation of laws. He will make this work for him, both internally and externally, because he always does. That's that's the sort of second, that's Houdini 2.0. <laughs> Houdini original gets out of the scrape. Houdini 2.0 says, okay, I can't get out of it, but I'm going to make it work for me. Yeah. And look, there's been so much news coming out of Israel, right? Anyone trying to follow it is going to bound to get a headache or his head spinning because really you read every hour of a new headline, right? Whatever Smotrich is saying against the LGBTQ community and what uh, Ben Gvir is doing with his authority over the police. This, Jonathan, the judicial overhaul is the thing to focus on. It is the most important thing happening in Israel now because if it changes as fundamentally as uh, parts of the government want to change it, it changes everything. So we're not focusing, and we've been focusing on this for, I think, three weeks running, but I think it's important to say this is the thing to focus on if you're wondering, right, trying to make a sense of, of what is happening in Israel. Now, again, this is an argument that ideologically runs decades back in Israel. The Supreme Court is very powerful. It sits not only as the highest court of appeal, but also as the high court of justice, right? Reading petitions against various government authorities at first instance, meaning almost anyone today can file a petition. There is a deep disagreement about how much power the court has, um, especially pointing the people who are supportive of this reform or this overhaul would point to the legendary Aharon Barak, right, as the bastion of, of Israeli jurisprudence, but as the person who also opened up or took, as they see it, a lot more power than the court needed to take. And now they say we're just balancing it uh, back. But again, this is an argument that has lived in Israel for a very long time. Uh, and we should probably point out some of its main points just to kind of maybe set the, the stage on what we're, we're talking about. So, so essentially, the, the, the ideologues on one side, as we said, say Aharon Barak took too much power. He expanded what we call uh, the reasonableness clause and the right of standing and the fact that there was a basic law, the most important basic law maybe in Israel, human dignity and liberty. He used that to disqualify 20 laws. And we need to b- bring the power back to the legislative branch. The people who oppose this reform will say, beyond the fact that you're doing this reform while the prime minister himself is on uh, is on trial, but would say this. The problem is that there is no other thing in Israel but the judicial oversight, right? If you don't have two houses of parliament, if you don't actually have a constitution, if amending the basic laws, you just need either a simple majority or a very slim majority, the only thing you have is the Supreme Court, and that should be guarded. Um, so that is really the heart of the argument. Obviously, the people who jumped on the bandwagon in the in the right side of the political map are the people who opposed Netanyahu trial, a lot of the Haredim who see the liberal decisions by the Supreme Court as encroaching on their status quo, and settlers who think that that the, the, the Supreme Court is being too intervening in decisions regarding uh, Palestinian private land. So that is basically, I just did a, a very brief, I hope, judicial, uh, a brief tutorial on Israeli judiciary. You did uh, Israeli jurisprudence 101. <laughs> it was, take the course apologies, if you apologies. No, that was very helpful and you clarifying. I, I think this it's such an interesting point about judicial activism. I think that's the word I would use for somebody like Aharon Barak, mm-hmm. who was a judicial activist. It, that would be the term that critics would apply to him, certainly. 
These things move in generations because the argument in the United States for the last 30, 40 years on the right has been that the US Supreme Court was too activist. These were liberal, um, uh, into, you know, activist liberals, uh, who were exceeding their authority. And they campaigned and campaigned and campaigned not to ch- take away the Supreme Court's rights or powers, but actually to change the personnel. And they now have done that. It took them 30, 40 years, but they now have a six to three conservative majority on the court. Now, for the next 10, 20, 30 years, you will hear the other side. It will be liberals and the left, for example, after the Dobbs decision overturning abortion rights, who will be saying this is an activist interventionist court and we need to go back to judicial restraint um, because these, and it's basically about who's in charge. And so right now, you've had, a set, you know, in the minds of the Israelis driving this reform, a court in Israel that has been too liberal. But I'm struck by what you say, which is, you know, in a way, of course, because there were, there is no other check or balance on the majority power. You have fused power in the Israeli system, much as you do in Britain, where the government sits in the the executive sits in the legislature, and so one is not a check on the other because the government has a majority in the Knesset, and then there's nothing else. Mm-hmm. So, of course, it, the, that's fallen to the court. That is why people are worried about it, I would say. Right, and it does seem like we are on a collision course between the legislator or the, execu- or the executive branch and the judiciary who heard the speech by Chief Justice Esther Chayut, essentially even between the lines, maybe also not as subtext, but actual text, uh, insinuating that this reform, this overhaul planned by Netanyahu and Yariv Levine is an unconstitutional constitutional amendment to the basic law of the judiciary. You saw protests in the streets, 80,000 Israelis in Tel Aviv, uh, in pouring rain, by the way. It's been called the umbrella protest because everyone was standing around with an umbrella protesting this. There promises to be more people on this uh, Saturday. This is how this is, is unfolding now. I have nothing, you know, I don't know what to say about how it will uh, continue in the future. This is where, uh, this is the point we are in time right now. But we want to move on to our guest, who's not only an expert on all of these matters that we've been discussing, but also part of the Arab minority in Israel that might suffer, might be the first to suffer if the Supreme Court is emasculated and becomes weaker. Uh, And that's why we wanted to hear from him. Michael Kariani is Professor of Law at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, former Dean of the Law Faculty there. He specialises in civil and international law. Uh, he's held visiting positions at Longlist, Georgetown Law Centre, Melbourne Law School, Stanford Law School, Yale, the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. It is a very bursting list. He is a Fulbright scholar, originally from Kafaya Sif in the uh, Galilee region of Israel. Today lives in Neve Shalom, a cooperative village in Israel jointly founded by Israeli Jews and Arabs in an attempt to show that the two peoples can live side by side and in peace. Michael, we want to talk about the judicial reform, so-called, that's planned by the Netanyahu government. Um, but also about how you see things as part of the Arab minority in Israel. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. We, we are talking on, on Wednesday evening, and there's a lot of ground to cover, as Jonathan said. But let's begin with the what the whole country is talking about at this time, and that is the bombshell decision by the high court in Israel uh, to rule that Shas's uh, leader, Derry, cannot serve as minister due to his uh, conviction for tax fraud. First of all, uh, just to hear from you how you view this decision and, and where are we all heading w- with this? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very long decision. It's a 140. 43 pages. I've, I've skimmed it just, mm-hmm. just now. But the decision is basically the prime minister's decision to appoint Arya Dere is unreasonable. And therefore, he needs to actually dismiss Arya Dere from his position. That's the bottom line. And as it happens, this issue of, of reviewing what the government is doing because of its decision being reasonable or not, is is one item on the agenda of the Minister of Justice is that to abolish this cause from administrative law in Israel, meaning that you can no longer 
disqualify a decision because it happens to be unreasonable. It's not specified in any law in Israel that you can you you need to apply your discretional authority and be reasonable in doing so. It's it's Israeli common law that has been actually been taken from English common law. Mm-hmm. That's how public officials should operate, is that they should be reasonable in applying their discretion when appointing ministers or actually doing anything else. Uh, One way or another, it is usually the Brits who are to blame. The, it's, you stole <laughs> my line, man. You stole my line. I was sitting with that. As long as the law professor yeah. can give me the authority to blame you. Okay. Usually, it yeah. usually works. I'm but fine. I, you, you mentioned the 140-odd pages, and I'm sure the legal arguments are really sound and well-argued. But an institution like this is not just legal, it is also political. And I'm interested to know whether you think politically, looking out for its own self-preservation, this decision by the court was wise when there is a government who, that says the problem with this court is it is it exceeds its authority, it reaches in to the political sphere, it makes decisions that are, really should be beyond the reach of a court. And then as if to prove that case against it, it is said to an elected prime minister who you can and cannot pick as ministers in your government. Have the Supreme Court in a way made their enemy's case for them, do you think? Well, actually, for, for the record, it needs to be stated that the panel that handed down this, this decision in matter of Ariadere was an 11 justice panel. Uh, okay, mm-hmm. so the Supreme Court has 15 justices, and it's 11 out of the 15 justices. And for the record, it needs to also be stated that on that panel were justices that were appointed by um, Shaked, a, a specific agenda to pack the court with the right justices in terms of having a more conservative ideology and being justices that would tend to kind of do less in terms of their inter- intervention in what the government is doing. So to say it's political... I mean, you have to take the whole group into consideration, and that group happened to be a mixed group and not just, you know, a group of one ideology, which is like one Ahrom Barak just giving or handing down this this decision. I mean, the issue of reasonableness is, is a matter of principle and whether it should be part of Israeli administrative law or it should not. And so we need to go back to basics and and think why has the Israeli Supreme Court introduced this administrative judicial review power saying to the government, listen, you can't do this because it's unreasonable. So once you are appointed to this public office, you take on this ministerial position, you're no longer just representing your constituency or you're representing your party. You assume your role as a minister in the name of the general public. You're the trustee of the general public. And then you ask yourself, is it reasonable or not as a trustee of the general public, being a minister of this or that, or being you know, a, a director general of this ministry or that, whether it is, it is, it is okay to hold you responsible or accountable if you act unreasonably. And I think most people, when asked, or at least legal scholars, when when asked this question, would say, yes, of course. I mean, you're a trustee of the public. Should I anticipate that you would be acting in good faith, being reasonable in what you're doing, in your appointments, in your discretion? And I think it's, it's obviously, yes, you can't appoint people with such a criminal record. A minister that has just, you know, said to the court, promised the court that he would not come back to political life. And just the next day, yeah, he, he, he would be saying, no, I, 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 it was just, you know, something I said. And, and then he would be coming back, not just to the Knesset, but actually to taking on a ministerial portfolio. So I guess, you know, it's really unreasonable to appoint such a person 
with, with such powers over the whole public in, in yeah. the state of Israel. You know, and let's, uh, let's, let's kind of zoom out maybe from talking about dairy to talking about the whole agenda, really. Yeah. And the one thing that strikes me, and I have to say as someone who's been following this very closely for the past couple of weeks, it's obvious that if this is implemented, right, as it is written, it will affect minorities in Israel first and foremost, yeah. right? Because they have the Supreme Court, the High Court of Justice protects them. And especially and particularly probably the Arab minority, we can think about what the plans are in that regard. Why am I not hearing, maybe I'm missing something, but why am I not hearing more of that community talking, speaking up against this, these plans? I think one reason is, 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 is being disenchanted with the Israeli legal system and that disenchantment mm -hmm. being taking place for a whole long period of time. Mm -hmm. I mean, w when I'm interviewed in, in, in local Arab radio stations and I, I happen to be critical of the current agenda, I'm always asked, why do you have such high expectations to begin with, with, with the Israeli Supreme Court? It, it has not done us well. Anyway, so why should we be bothered because of what's happening? Actually, my answer is the following. First, even if it has been doing 10 out of 100%, I mean, we're going to be down to 5 or 3 or 2%, and that is a curtailment that we should be considering. Second, there has been some certain junctions where the Supreme Court has handed down some important decisions that we, we cannot just, you know, brush aside and say, yeah, they're, they're not that important. I mean, you have human rights organization representing the Arabs in Israel, and you have human rights organizations and, and attorneys representing people from the occupied territories that everything that happens almost it ends up the doorsteps of, of the Israeli Supreme Court trying to challenge. And actually, as an academic, I also have a theory that even if the challenge would not be fruitful, the mere challenge itself is, is, is a protest, is, is something that you are sounding and saying there is injustice here. I know you're not going to be granting this petition, but nonetheless, I'm going to keep on fighting for my rights because I believe that these rights belong to me and I would need to be fighting discrimination and what have you. So mm -hmm. it, it is true, Uni, that I don't think that among my community that people have been that much forceful, but it's because of what I just tried to say that mm -hmm. there is this enchant disenchantment from the what judicial system has done over the years, and it's not that effective. And I think there is a lot of truth in that. But nonetheless, it, it is still considerable if you come down from 10% to 5% or to 3%, that is also something that you should be taking in, into consideration. It, it's very interesting to hear you say that because I think um, there's an image people outside the country have when they hear that the Supreme Court stands as a guard against the tyranny of the majority. They therefore see the court as the protector of the minority, and they imagine that that minority would have a kind of romantic or emotional attachment to the court. And what you're telling us is, in a way, no, they don't. And I get that. But nevertheless, the, the way that view abroad does hold, and it's been very useful for Israel around the world, that perception that there is this bastion of rights in the form of the Supreme Court. And it's meant that when people criticize Israel, then defenders of Israel hit back and say, no, it's the only democracy in the Middle East. And look, it's got this wonderful Supreme Court, which all these great liberal lawyers around the world admire and so on. Well, interesting to hear what you make of that claim anyway, but that claim will be harder and harder to make, won't it, if Justice Minister Levin and Prime Minister Netanyahu get their way? I think you're absolutely right in that sense. I, I always believe that Israel exists in what I call a democratic deficit. And that deficit exists in a number of issues. Okay. One issue is, is the Palestinian minority, the Arab minority that exists in Israel itself. Their citizenship is kind of invisible. I mean, it's, it's been characterized as a citizenship that you would have individual right. But when it comes to group rights, it's not effective. 
So there is one Republican citizenship that is kind of relevant for the Jewish majority and more of an individual citizenship that is restricted to issues of individual rights that is more applicable to the Arabs. And if you think of the Israeli scenery as a whole, you can see how that is being applied. I mean, when you think of collective rights, when you speak of collective rights, you see how the collective rights of the Arabs is on a decline and how you can see more support for more and more collective rights for the Jewish majority. When in terms of legal theory, the group that needs more protection in terms of its group rights is actually the minority and not the majority. Now, the Supreme Court, in terms of group rights for the Arabs, it has been supportive. As I said, the conception is, and that's also my view, it has not been adequately supportive. Mm-hmm. It, it really hasn't got there. I can just give you at least one example in terms of the status of the Arabic language inside of Israel. So until 2018, Arabic was an official language, officially, formally, just like as Hebrew was. That was the provision. And it actually goes back to the British mandate as Arabic was recognized as one language, which is official together with Hebrew, as well as with English. In 1948, English was taken out, so you remained with Arabic and Hebrew. But when a decision tended to the official language or the status of official languages in Israel, it has said, even though the formal provision was equality, total equality between Arabic and Hebrew, which is nowhere to be found in public signs, or at least in publishing laws and decisions. I mean, it's nowhere like in Canada, right? Where you see the same law, the same decision published in English and in French, right? In Israel, that has never happened. But then the court would come in and say, well, in four municipalities, which is Tel Aviv, Yaffa, Ramli, Lod, and what was called Upper Nazareth, you should have Arabic on these public signs. But then this would not be jeopardizing what the court said as being the senior sister, which is Hebrew. Now, where did you come with this proposition of the senior sister? So it's amazing that the court would be saying this. So it's recognizing the status of Arabic, but it's like a conditional recognition. In 2018, Arabic was degraded. Now it's no longer on the same footing as Hebrew. It's a second best language. It is like recognized as a language that you may publish in. It's it's not Japanese or it's not English, but nonetheless, it is subordinated to Hebrew as being the sole official language of Israel. So you can see where things are heading in terms of having this kind of, of, of pyramid of rights where you see the rights protecting more the majority and less the minority, where from a legal point of view, it should be exactly the opposite. And I'm, I'm, I'm jumping in on, on Jonathan's second half of his question, meaning what will happen to Israel internationally if it doesn't have, or if the world sees Israel as not having an independent judiciary anymore, uh, which, again, has been for many years the defense Israel had against external investigation. So what will that mean for the country? And what will that mean for individuals, specifically uh, military officers, for example? Actually, the issue of complementarity, which is an international law rule, mm-hmm. that if, if you have proper internal investigation, that that can serve you well in terms of international investigations. Okay. I'm not sure that what is really an issue is is this matter of undermining the judicial independence, which can be one. Actually, I think that what the Prime Minister of Israel has said when he was indicted on uh, the footstep of the court, that he has been framed uh, as a Prime Minister. I mean, the almighty Benjamin Netanyahu is himself being framed by the police and by the Attorney General, Right. There is no more undermining of the competency of law enforcement in Israel than you have a prime minister saying that I myself 
who is the prime minister, has been framed in terms of indicting me. So if this is what Israeli law enforcement authorities are doing, then how can they be credible, okay, when they're not framing something from A to Z, but what they are doing is just, you know, saying there is no evidence. I mean, it's much easier, right, to destroy evidence and hide evidence of being culpable in something than being framed from A to Z in some certain indictment. So I think although, if there although is... Although, if I may on that, I mean, people around the world heard Donald Trump say that legal investigations of him were a political witch hunt and people it, it dismissed it. It would be quite different if the Congress was drawing up a plan to gut the powers of the United States Supreme Court. That would discredit America's judicial system in the eyes of the world much more than just the hot air coming from a politician, even the politician who heads the government. So I think, in a way, we've just reinforced the, the, the thrust of what Yonit is asking there is, if Israel is doing this to itself, not just the rhetoric of a politician, but actual changes, is it going to be the case that international prosecutors are going to say, look, you're not going to get properly prosecuted or judged in your own country, we better step in. And that means soldiers and others traveling abroad could no longer be free to do that because they could well face investigation in the countries they arrive into. Yeah, th th that might be very well possible. And this is something that we, we, we should wait and see to see what's going to be taking place in the international mm -hmm. arena. You are an expert on your own life. So I just want to ask you before completely ending this conversation, which was fascinating. I mean, you, you know, you live in the Veshalom. I assume you've dedicated a lot of your life to this coexistence between Jews and Arabs inside Israel. What is your even just personal feeling when you see the makeup of this new government with people like Ben Gvir, with people like Smotrich? Like, what is it? What do you feel? Is it dispirited? Is it, you know, this is just a part of the process? What, what are your feelings personally? I mean, I mean, I, I do feel the distress. I, I do feel that 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 the society is at large is is becoming more split. Mm -hmm. The conflict has been in existence for so long, and it's becoming worse. There is no kind of a political solution in sight. I can only see that things are being going from bad to worse. I mean, look at Ben Gvir, okay? Take his claim. He, he, he wants to pray in the Temple Mount, and he's kind of claiming that there should be this freedom of religion on the Temple Mount. But let's take the Western Wall, I mean, and apply his argument to the Western Wall. Do all people, women and men, can be praying freely in the Western Wall or people coming, you know, Christians coming to the Western Wall? I think this public sentiment is is really inciting a lot of propaganda and a lot of misrepresenting what people actually want. I'm 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 confident that a lot of people just want to you know try to end to improve their life, but it's it's been driven by this whole kind of what I call facade of hatred. That, that is is taking control of the public sentiment and it's taking us from bad to worse. And, and that is very depressing for me uh, individually. Mm -hmm. We wanted to end on a high note, so I'm sorry to have dragged <laughs> okay. you into that. But we really thank you so much, uh, Michael, for talking to us. It was such a fascinating conversation and we're really glad you did it. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. So that was a really interesting conversation. Uh, what was striking to me was the, and what kind of bugged me before we started the conversation was really to ask, why is the Arab minority not speaking against this judicial overhaul? Like they will, I can think of 10 different areas in which they will suffer discrimination just if you make the Supreme Court weaker than it is today and you don't hear their voice at all. And I thought his, his answer on that was, was really striking and honest. Yeah, I mean, disenchantment is such a, good word, I thought, because to be disenchanted, you had to once be enchanted, mm -hmm. you know, and the, it implied there, even though I don't think he spelt it out this way, that there was a time when Arab citizens of Israel would have had a faith and trust in the perhaps the democratic institutions of the state might be overstating it, but certainly in the Supreme Court. 
and but they didn't have it and don't have that trust or faith anymore and that predates recent events you know mm-hmm. that has been long incoming so that sort of maybe even slightly romanticized or idealized view of the court that again i do think liberal admirers of israel around the world hold on to I think he was telling us, look, Arabs in Israel became disabused of that, disenchanted, let's use his very good word, uh, of that some time ago. And therefore, you know, they don't really see this as big, some uh, some big crossing of the Rubicon, because for them, that river was crossed some, some time in the past. So really good to hear from him, uh, and really enlightening, I thought. So, awards? Yes, indeed. We must um, give out awards. You're going to give our Mensch Award because it's been some time coming. I wanted to do a little mention before we got to the Mensch. Can I squeeze Knock that in? Knock yourself out. I, I just wanted to make take note of, a. it's in my neck of the woods actually, here in London and specifically in Hackney where I live, where a concert was performed at the weekend at the Hackney Empire. No big deal there. 700 people in attendance. Again, no big deal. It's a big venue. Um, they would regularly expect to pack it out, except in this case, all 700 of members of the audience were women and girls. They were ultra-Orthodox women and girls at a Haredi concert in Hackney. Uh, they were there to hear Bracha Yafi, I think is how you pronounce her name. She is, uh, as the name perhaps suggests, an Orthodox Jewish female musician who covers her hair, sings only to women, and has an all-female band. This being relevant, of course, because ultra-Orthodox women would only perform, I think, for other women, and uh, ultra-Orthodox men are barred from hearing the singing voice of a woman. So within the rules, this is the, the only sort of concert they could go to. But the crucial thing is, the presiding sort of rabbinate, the group of rabbis who rule really quite strictly that community said no. They banned the girls from going. They issued an edict saying that it may cause spiritual harm in ruchnias, spirituality, and hashkafa, religious outlook and ethos. And they said no, they cannot go. They should not participate in such an event. And the girls and women of this community defied the rabbis and they went anyway. And that's a bit of courage, I think. Some of the women would were not even telling their friends they were going because they feared their children wouldn't get places at schools, uh, in their next schools or elsewhere, if it got out that they'd gone. I mean, this is really something about the you know, rule of that community. So good for those women and girls for turning up anyway. You know, as is obvious, I was not there. I don't know people <laughs> who were there. But I'm told it was good. The important point is they went and they asserted their own freedom and autonomy to do so. So good for them. Nice, nice. So um, agreed. Uh, but now I want to go on to our official Mensch Award of the week. Yes. Um, just I'm, I'm, I see myself as a model of patience and calm because I wanted to give. I, I essentially I want to give this man a Mensch Award every week. But I don't. I'm just looking for a good enough reason to do it, and that of course is the 96 year old Mel Brooks. Current king of the Jews, we can agree on that. The reason I'm giving him the uh, Mensch Award is that finally, after 42 years of promising the sequel to History of the World, part one, comes History of the World, part two. The trailer dropped this week. It will be, it's a series, four parts. It has Jesus and Zygmunt Freud. And if I, you know, those are the characters I picked up from the trailer. And it's happening. I'm not saying I've waited for it for a long time, but I have been waiting for it for a long time. So I think he deserves Mel Brooks, certified comic genius. That is wonderful. And I'm guessing at 96, he's not going to be in it. No, but he, I mean, he recorded the introduction. Maybe he's in it. I didn't see the whole thing. But, you know, I mean, it took 42 years. I guess writing comedy is hard, but it's coming. So that's exciting. (laughs) You know, I saw him do a stand-up show when he was a, just a, a young, crazy kid of 88 um, <laughs> at, here in London. And he is just properly, genuinely hilarious. He's one of those people who's just hilarious before he's even opened his mouth. He's got that face mm-hmm. that you just can't help but love. And so funny is Ray, Mel Brooks's face that a game I used to play with my late father, I don't know whether I've told you this, when he and I would sit in shul in synagogue is we would identify shul lookalikes. And every shul always has lookalikes, people who look like other people. But there was a distinguished member of Elstree and Borenwood shul where I grew up who did have, I think, a striking resemblance to Mel Brooks. And even seeing him, the lookalike, made me laugh because it (laughs) reminded me of Mel Brooks. So I am delighted with that Mel Brooks is our mensch of the week. Should we move to chutzpah? Yes, sir. And um, a less 
cheery story, but actually um, the two people involved in the story, one could be Mensch, one could be Chutzpah, really, um, because of how this played out. You know that we have a Home Secretary here in the form of Suella Braverman, who is very hostile to uh, migrants and refugees or would-be migrants trying to cross the channel in small boats. She has spoken in very strong language about fending off a sort of invasion of uh, would-be migrants here, has a whole plan to put them on an aeroplane and send them to Rwanda instead. Well, this week at a public meeting in her constituency, she was confronted by Joan Salter, who is 83 years old and a survivor of the Holocaust. And in a clip of video that went viral, Joan Salter said to Suella Braverman that she was discouraged by the Home Secretary's use of language that she, Joan Salter, said was very, very similar to that used in Nazi Germany against Jewish people. She said that, you know, um, your talk of invasion and so on, when I hear you use words against refugees like swarms and an invasion, I am reminded of the language used to dehumanize and justify the murder of my family and millions of others, said Joan Salter, and she had been forced to flee Belgium when, as a child in the 1940s. Uh, the reason why this is a chutzpah award is Suella Braverman's response, which was to, yep, thank Joan Salter for the question, but then said that she would not apologise at all, that we must not shy away from saying there is a problem. I won't apologise for the language that I've used to demonstrate the scale of the problem. Unrepentant, even in the face literally face to face in person in a room with the survivor of the holocaust i would have exp you know i wouldn't have expected i might have hoped for more from a frontline politician but chutzpah of the week goes to suella Bra braverman for being unchastened even by uh, a survivor of the shoah Agreed, agreed. No uh, disagreements on the panel this week. We shall say our thank yous to Gaia Glaser, Omer Primat, Om Atik, and Yair Vashan. Big thank you from us. If you've enjoyed this, remember, review, rate, spread the word wherever you want to do that, including on Facebook at Unholy Podcast and Instagram the same way. We will see each other for next week's twist in the ongoing legal drama series known as the Israeli government and politics. See you then, Yoni. We will indeed. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.